This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I am a professor in the physics department, yet my group works on problems that are kind of all across this campus. Um, I've included a few example pictures from the research projects in our group. We work on immune system dynamics in the biology. We work on ecosystem dynamics in food webs. We work on communication networks such as the internet. So you may wonder, what does this have to do with physics? Well, Stephen Hawking, maybe the most famous physicist that's living right now, has advice for students in the current generation. He says, the 21st century will be the century of complexity, and the opportunities are there for you. So what does that mean? Well, that means work on models and mechanisms for complexity. Work on networks, data science, machine learning, Multi-scale modeling, that is scales spanning large scales from the small to the very large and the connections between them in both space and time. It's intrinsically interdisciplinary. The big challenges in science, engineering, social systems today are, in, are interdisciplinary at their core. And it's through these team, teamwork and partnerships across disciplines that lead to innovation and policy. So today I'm going to talk to you about the simplest story that I can tell you about sort of models and mechanisms that will touch on interdisciplinary collaboration. But keep in mind that all of these different components are important for work on complex systems and working together with people in different fields is an important part of this as well. Okay, so what are complex systems? What is complexity? So there's sort of three things that we think about in terms of being important ingredients. One is components. So your system is built out of interact components. Um, they may be the same, they may be different from one another. Those components have interactions in a network. So they interact with each other, and then the network is somehow embedded in an uncertain environment. Um, and so the question is, do systems built out of components that interact in an uncertain environment share certain fundamental properties? And so today I'm going to try to convince you that they do, and one of those is high variability. So they don't always do the same thing every time. Um, Trade-offs. So it's like you have to do a lot of things all at the same time. So you inevitably have trade-offs between different types of, of jobs or different types of risk factors. And so one way to think about those trade-offs is that you might want to invest some of your resources to be robust for certain situations, and yet along with that, I'll show you how that, that leads to fragilities hand-in-hand. Um, hand. Okay, so let's start by talking about high variability. I've got a graph here that shows... Um, large disasters. So this is from the 20th century, the 100 large disaster, largest disasters worldwide. So there's three different curves plotted here. One is natural disasters in blue, the other is technological disasters in red, and then there's power outages. And so they're all kind of collapsed to be on the same line, and there's a different scale. So natural disasters are in hundreds of billions of dollars. So if you look at the bottom, the x-axis, you see 10 to the zero, that's one. So one means $100 billion. So the largest natural disasters are hundreds of billions of dollars. So for example, the Tohoku earthquake, $300 billion estimated loss, perhaps more than that. 
Technological disasters are in the tens of billions of dollars. That might be something like a chemical spill or oil leak. Um, and, and then power outages are measured here in the tens of millions of customers affected. Okay. So you can see they all have a similar behavior, and the behavior is, is, looks like a line. It looks like a line because of the way I've made my scale. So the scale has, again, 1 is 10 to the 0, the larger size, 10 to the minus 1, that's 0.1, 10 to the minus 2 on the x-axis, and the vertical axis is also powers of 10 going up. And so what that tells me is that a slope 1 on that scale, it's a logarithmic scale, log-log plot, and that tells me that the, the vertical axis is, is basically related to the horizontal axis, like 1 over x. So the y is proportional to 1 over x. Okay, so, so what I'm plotting, again, I told you it's the size on the horizontal axis, and the vertical axis is something called the rank. So the rank is just what it sounds like. It's the, the size. So the biggest comes first, that's rank one. So the rank one event is on the position one, and so the dot is telling you what size is the biggest one. Rank two, that comes next. It's smaller because it's rank two, comes next, rank three, comes next, and so on. So this is a plot of the log, natural logarithm, or log base 10, I guess, of the rank, versus the log of the size. And, and I've got 100 events in each category, so the smallest event will be rank 100. Okay, so what can we learn from a plot like this? Well, one thing you can see is that the worst event is much worse than the, the least bad event, right? So the worst is much worse than the typical. The median marks the point in each one of those curves where half of the events are bigger, half of the events are smaller. And you can see it's way up there near the smallest event size. So the worst is much worse than the typical. And this is characteristic of this kind of high variability. Um, so, for example, I went to Trader Joe's today, and I bought a bag of peaches, okay? So I got these peaches, and they're like totally all the same size, pretty much. So peaches are not like this. Peaches are all about the same size. But if you look at disasters, you have mag orders of magnitude span in the sizes of those events. Um, and peaches, if you had peaches that were orders of magnitude different from one another, you would have like an itty bitty tiny peach, and then you'd find a peach the size of the room. So this is different from that. You have this really large span in sizes. Most of the losses, monetary losses or fire, loss to fire, are in those lar few largest events, while most of the events are small. So one of the things to see in this is that getting really large events in complex systems is to be expected. It's not inconsistent with the statistics. A large event goes along with having mostly small events. And actually, I'll come to, back to it at the end, a large event is not always a bad thing. So, so now let's turn to this question of robustness and complexity and how this relationship can lead to this high variability phenomenon. Okay, so what do I mean by robustness? Robustness means I want my system to behave as predictably and regularly as possible despite uncertainties in the environment and despite um, you know, uncertainties in the components or the connections between them. Okay, so this idea of robustness, it doesn't come for free. You can't make it infinitely robust to all things. So you want it to be robust to uncertainties that are common, the system was designed to handle, or maybe has evolved to handle, 
um, biologically, but yet it will come with fragilities to other sorts of things. So this is really the, the main and central point of how I like to think about complex systems in my group and the idea of this highly optimized tolerance, which is the mechanism for complexity I'm going to talk about today. Oh no, right? Oh no, right? So this, this is a plant, but it wouldn't surprise you if that would happen. And, and it's because our computers are complex systems. So a computer is really complex. It is much more complex, and we design it that way through a sort of layered complexity and layered architecture to be much more robust to uncertainties in your homework assignments and deadlines and getting your lab reports due. It's much better than counting beans or using an abacus or a slide rule when it comes to getting your work done, except now you're fragile to something, something new, something that wasn't even part of beans, abacuses, or slide rules, that is software failures. And we bury that complexity and that fragility as deeply as we can the architecture. So while you're much better at calculating things on your computer, when it breaks down, it breaks down in a sort of fatal way. Okay, so I want to think about this notion of being robust to design for or known uncertainties or to make your performance be higher, but popping up as fragilities to unknown or rare perturbations or things you hadn't designed for. Think of it as a waterbed. I'm going to get more robust in one part, but I pop up somewhere else. And that comes from constraints in your overall system. Okay, so I said hot. We have hot, right? Forest fires are hot. So it turns out forest fires are actually a, a sort of um, fundamental way of talking about complexity. And actually a lot of my early work in this field came from looking at forest fires and using simple models of forest fire to illustrate these points. So the question of forest, are forest fires hot has, has more than one meaning for me. Um, and when I, the Whittier fire started you know, a week, a little over a week ago, it, it made me want to tell this story to you and share it with you. So yes, the answer, just to predate it, is yes, forest fires are hot. And we can all see it and watch it. It's really um, consuming. And let me tell you why they are highly optimized tolerance as well. Okay, so here are just some images from the, the Whittier fire in the back country and now in the front country also, Santa Barbara County. So if you're sitting here at UCSB and you're looking up the hill the last week or so, you see these burning flames at night and those are coming up over the mountains on that top curve there and you can see the red map of active fire zone back from July 16th. If you look at a sort of three-dimensional aerial view of this. You see it started back by Lake Kachuma, and then it sort of came up over the top and crests on the mountains. Um, and then there's a smoke map you can see down in the, in the corner on the left there. And, and we're just this little teeny, teeny bit of it. So there's wildfires that are going on all over the place, um, you know, in the United States during the summer. Okay. So here's a map also. This is like their their um, Whittier sort of operational map. This one was from yesterday. And you can see the perimeter of the Whittier fire um, back, which started by Lake Kachuma, a little bit better on this one, I think. And one of the things that you see is that there's black, right? The black part of the line around the red region, that's the containment. The part that when they say it's like 75% contained, they're talking about the black part. And when they're talking about 
the rest, that's the red part. So that, unfortunately, that's the part facing our direction, although they're definitely getting it under control this, at this point. So pretty easy to contain it back by Lake Kinshuma, right? And you can also see that there are some other fires that happened in the not-too-distant past. There's something called the Sherpa Fire, which is the one on the left that's orange. There's the Gap Fire that was from 2008 in the orange. And those regions are also regions where containment walls are more easily built, and it doesn't necessarily want to burn again. Um, and then you're sort of left with this, this region through, through dense forest that hasn't burned for a while, and that's the place you've got the fuels and the most vulnerability. So if you go back in Santa Barbara County, back to the early 1900s, you can see this patchwork pattern, and that, that red arrow on the, on the graph up there is pointing out by Lake Kachuma, where the Whittier Fire was, and, and just this whole idea of a patchwork sort of pattern in, in the forest is the typical thing that one sees at fires. Okay, so what determines the dynamics of forest fires? Well, first of all, dynamics of a fire is sort of characterized in terms of fire intensity, how frequently it may happen in a region, how large it is in extent, things like weather, the ignitions, topography, soil, climate, you know, the plants, the health of the plants and so on, all contribute to burn in fires realistically. And I'll come back to this at the end when I talk about more realistic fire models. To get started, I'm going to talk about a very abstract um, representation of this, a hot forest fire model. And the idea is that I have a forest and I'm burning a fire kind of on the two-dimensional surface. And the idea is going to be to, to think about how I will suppress or or you know, cut fire breaks in a way that will um, put the fire out at some perimeter. So the, if you are, for instance, trying to manage your forest, you might want to maximize vegetation that remains and trade off the resources and the cost of building that perimeter and the risk of your population. Okay, so the early ways that we were developing these models started with a very familiar model from physics, and it's called a percolation model, which is a simplified forest fire model. And the idea is that I have a grid, a square lattice, and I go through and I occupy sites on those lattices. And those occupied sites are my trees. So I'll have it composed in a configuration like this of a bunch of little trees that are connected to each other in a cluster, and then I'll have little single trees all by themselves, and then I'll have a lot in this particular picture, a lot of empty space. And then I'm going to have a spark. So a spark is going to hit the lattice at a single site. A spark that hits at an empty site does nothing, while a spark that hits an occupied site loses the cluster. And so I want to think about the problem of how do I you know, maximize the yield or compute the yield of my forest, well, let's start with a certain density of trees, but also acknowledge the fact that I'm going to have a spark. So let's compute the yield after one spark. So it's however the density or the number of trees I begin with minus the number that I lose. Okay, so I can draw a curve, and I can imagine generating all kinds of different configurations of these trees. Um, and density just means, like, what fraction is occupied. So 0.2 would mean 20, out, you know, 0.2, 2 out of 10, or 20 out of 100 of the trees are, uh, the sites have a tree on them, the rest is blank. One means everything's occupied. Um, so I generate all possible configurations at a given density. 
If I have no sparks, then the yield is the density, but if I include sparks, then I get a curve that looks like this. So at very low densities, I follow the no sparks curve. At high density, I fall off, and there's some optimal point in the middle, which I'll call a critical point. And if I go to very, very, very large lattices or grids to begin with, then the critical point gets very sharp. So at low densities, it's great, right? I'm happy. Fires don't really matter, but I really don't get a very high yield because I start with such a sparse forest. At very high densities, I'll call that cold, right? Very high densities, greedy, plant a lot of trees, but I'm very likely to hit that cluster and everything burns and so then I lose a lot. If I plant the whole thing, then I'm guaranteed I'm going to lose everything. Okay, so there's some special point right in the middle called this critical point. And this type of behavior in physics is actually a very gen generic universal type of behavior. And there's a whole field of physics that's built on properties of these critical points. You know, fractals, criticality, you know, power laws all associated with this. But it doesn't look very much like our pattern of fires, right? The, the, the fires are sort of meandering and, and sort of sparsely connecting around. And the fires that we saw in Santa Brown County were, were like perimeters in a patchwork pattern. Um, so what, what about high yield configurations? What about a, a situation where I have well-defined barriers and, and um, you know, with dense vegetation between them? So if I design a forest in this way, then I get very high yields. So how do I get those? Well, these configurations don't happen by randomly throwing trees on my grid. I have to design it. They're structured. And physics, historically, has mostly ignored that. So we brought this idea of structuring this simple model from physics into the conversation in order to try to capture a phenomena that shows up all over the place in engineering and biology and ecology. And this is the idea of highly optimized tolerance. High yields, robustness um, as well. Um, it also gives me power law distributions. Okay, it doesn't always, if I know exactly where my spark is gonna be, then I just leave that site vacant and I don't have a fire. If I think my spark distribution is completely uniform in space, then it's the best situation to make all the grids, this, all the little regions the same size, and then I have a fire of a particular size. Um, so in both cases, you get high yields, um, but you don't get power loss. However, for, for most kinds of distributions of sparks with this problem, you look for high yield configurations and you do get power loss. So let me show you a little bit about how that goes. So imagine you have a forest and there's some regions where you're not very likely to get a fire or a spark and some regions you're very likely to. So maybe mountaintops or near roadsides where people drive with their cars or throw cigarettes out the window are high probability regions. So this is a, a, just a cartoon of our grid but now showing red as a region where I'm very likely to get a spark and blue as a region where I'm not very likely. So how would I design a set of cuts, which are fire breaks now, to get the highest yield. Well, that's an, an easy optimization problem that it turns out you can solve it analytically. So an optimized grid will put lots of fire break density up near the region where you're very likely to get a spark, but leave open the possibility of a large event um, in, in the region where you're not so likely. This gets you to much higher yields 
Um, another way to do this is to grow your forest. So plant a tree, plant the next tree, plant the next tree, and just keep doing it, always putting the tree in the place that for that next tree gives you the best yield. So you can kind of march up filling your forest instead of randomly throwing things at a certain density, just incrementally adding trees, and you go on and you go on, and you get an optimal forest, again, where the fire breaks or vacancies are highly concentrated in the region where your sparks are likely, but you leave open the possibility of a large fi fire in those regions where sparks are rare. So again, this process of walking you through takes you up to a high yield, but you go one step further and you crash and, and, and you have a big fire once you start breaking those fire breaks. So both of these processes lead me to one of those power law distributions where the rank or the probability is inversely proportional to size. So does the critical phase transition, but it looks really different and the configurations have really different properties. Okay, so let's turn and think about this idea of robustness and fragility and how it plays out when I think about these structured configurations. So here's my grid, optimal grid design with fire breaks highly concentrated in the regions that, that sparks are, are likely leaving open to fires elsewhere. What happens? Well, let's imagine I have small flaws in my fire breaks or spotting, you know, fires can jump a fire break. Then all of a sudden, the fact that this thing that I incorporated to give me more robustness and high yields now becomes a hypersensitivity. I'm sensitive to the properties of those fire breaks. And so I go from a high yield configuration to a disaster. Similarly, if I design for the idea that my probability is very high up in the left corner and that changes for some reason, and now it's more likely to have a spark somewhere else, that is also a disaster. So in going from this random configuration to a structured configuration, I've made some trade-offs. I'm more robust to, to, you know, I'm, I'm more able to get to high yield states than I could in a random configuration for a given density. So overall, I'm less sensitive to, to sparks at the density that I'm able to achieve, but I come, become very sensitive to my assumptions of where those sparks will occur and how flaws may come in. So the idea then is that what would I do if I was really trying to model a forest? I'd add another layer of complexity. I might add a, an adaptive firefighting thing that could go chase fires like a firefighter. Or I might add another layer of fire breaks like a backup just in case. So you layer these features for robustness, which makes your system more and more complex. And each time you do that, you develop sensitivities that are associated with the new structure you add to your system. Okay, so another thing that I told you I would tell you a little bit about are our collaborations with people on campus that do, do wildfire, real fires. So a big part of what my group does is interdisciplinary collaborations with groups on campus. And in the Department of Geography, we have something called the Southern California Wildfire Hazard Center, which develops realistic models of weather and fuel and, and uses GIS to do all this mapping. And so we worked with them to take some of these ideas that we developed in these very simple models of robustness and trade-offs and develop modeling tools 
um, that, that incorporate the real properties of, of wildfires. So, so right now, the earlier model I told you about, we just have a grid, it has a tree or not. Once you spark it, it spreads everywhere that it's connected to. That's not really how it works. So really, terrain makes a difference. So things burn uphill, unless there's wind, then it might burn downhill. Um, fuel conditions, if it's dry, how old is it? Um, is it dead? Um, weather conditions, the winds, the temperature and humidity, all factor in in very important ways in the propagation of wildfire. So the idea was then to take our grid model and generalize it to something that would really have fire spread not just be spread everywhere you're connected to, but rather characterize the spread in terms of a rate of spread that moves from cell to cell at a, in a potentially directional way that depends on features in that cell that come from topography or fuel models or weather, and then have regrowth properties whereby when something burns, it regenerates. So we developed a model in collaboration um, with the, the um, wildfire group in geography, and then we can run simulations. So one of the things that, that you do is you say, let me model the Whittier fire, for example. That's not what this one is, but imagine that you want to uh, model the hourly progression from the time of ignition through the end. So this is just an example of a comparison between this new model, which we developed, high H fire, or highly optimized tolerance fire, and the sort of the standard that the Forest Service had been using, which was called Farsight. And you watch these different colors correspond to hour by hour by hour by hour spread of, of a fire, the Simi fire, back in 2003. And it replicates the model that was really, at the time, the sort of state-of-the-art of, of the Simi fire. One of the problems with trying to actually know what the fire itself is doing is you don't have good satellite coverage on an hour-by-hour -hour basis of fires. If you pay attention to these things, you have these satellites that come around every six hours or so, and maybe you get an update, there's a lot of smoke. So it's never at this resolution, although having this resolution is really helpful for firefighters in planning. So, so people use models, and, and one of the one of the things that our model can do is, is help in these kinds of things. Um, the other thing that this model can do that the Farsight model couldn't do is run long-term evolution of these sort of forest ecosystems. So to recover that patchwork pattern, um, which it does fairly well. So the, the Forest Service model is basically orders of magnitude slower because we use a different algorithm, and our simulations are able to kind of re- recover these compact shapes and patchwork patterns. Okay, so this has been a really exciting, very relevant um, to Santa Barbara and, and our community collaboration where we basically build bridges between abstract models and realistic simulation models based on this idea of robustness trade-offs. Um, the, the curve with all the lines on it is just saying oh, both of these models produce power law distributions when run over long periods of time, which agree with statistical power law distributions obtained from, from forests. But, but I think more than the power laws, these kinds of simulation models help you think about planning and proactive measures. So you can run them to do in silico experiments of, of behavior in the forest. So, um, so one question that I'll sort of leave you with is this question, are things getting worse? Well, fires are getting bigger. Fires are getting more expensive. The biggest fires cost the most, which is part of that power law distribution that I showed you. 
why. Suppression policy has led to fuel buildup, urbanization, more homes up in the wildland area, and effects of climate change can effectively change distributions of sparks as well as things like fuel quality. Um, on the other hand, regular burn cycles are actually useful and beneficial to many ecosystem types, except dry places, wet places, urbanized places. But in other places, such as our forests in the backcountry, fire actually is an important part of regrowth in the forest. So biodiversity increases, and if you get the chance, go back and, you know, in one of the regions, not right now, but in a region that has had a recent fire, and you'll see, you'll see a lot of amazing regeneration. So there's a silver lining or a benefit to natural disasters. So again, just to remind you, um, the hot mechanism ties robustness to fragility in terms of a description for complex systems. And really, this fire story is one part of what we do in my group. So we work on earthquakes, forest fires, we work on neuroscience, immune system, we work on communication networks. And all of these collaborations connect sort of simple mechanistic ideas with sort of high fidelity models and data and questions that emerge from these other fields. It would not be possible without close collaborations with faculty across campus and at other universities and also with my awesome group of students composed of undergraduates, uh, graduate students, and postdocs. Not even all those shown here, without whom this work would not be possible or nearly as fun. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.